Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Life in a Bubble with me, Oliver Dingley. This is the podcast where some of Ireland's most successful people share and describe photos of their most memorable moments and the journeys that were behind them. Today's guest is one of my favourite comedians. I've been lucky enough to see him perform several times and each time I actually thought I'd ruptured something I was laughing so much. He's toured with some of the most well-known comedians from both Ireland and the UK. He's appeared on a variety of different TV shows and last March I was lucky enough to sit down with him. So today's guest is the brilliant Gerard Farley. Grode, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm a bit wet because it was lashing rain. It was lashing. It la- <laughs> lashing would be an absolute understatement. Is that time of year where it's just non-stop now? Yeah, it's just going to pour now for, I'd say, about two months. Mother Nature's coming back with vengeance. Yeah, you see, I think what was happening was everyone was saying, like, oh, it's climate change. Look how warm it is. And it, we were all just getting a little bit cocky there for a few minutes. But, no, it's <laughs> does, gone to does, hell does, does climate change exist? It does. It, it does, does, doesn't I'm it? I'm really it worried about climate change. It's, my new, it's the new thing that keeps me awake is climate change. I mean, you, you set an example. You're one of those people who fly around the city on a scooter. I am, actually, yeah. It's interesting because I think in any other country in the world, people will be like, oh, you're using a scooter and you're not using a diesel car. Thank you for looking after our environment. But I think in Dublin, people tend to be more like, oh, you're one of those on a scooter. I hope you're killed off it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, either you on a scooter, cyclists. Does, whoever gets in a car in Dublin city centre just gets road rage. That is exactly it. I saw Peugeot 206 outside almost run down a group of girls and I was like there, there's no reason to have road rage if you're in a Peugeot 206 you need to just yeah. know your place <laughs> do, do you get scooter rage is that a thing no I don't get scooter rage and I'll tell you why we don't get scooter rage us scooter people is because the wheels are too small the wheels oh. are too small and Ireland or well Dublin's streets are too there, there's too many you know potholes and stuff like that you have to keep your eyes out so you're just looking after yourself and just casually going along it's very relaxing I'll be my first photo and I'm going to go first on the photos this week okay and the picture is of you performing on stage now I'm going to get you to describe this to the listeners back home oh wow God, yeah, that is a photograph of me on stage in the Olympia. It's really weird when people take photographs of you on stage with an audience, that's not the way you remember it. You always remember it as things like being nervous. So it's only afterwards when someone shows you a photograph, you go, oh, I look like a proper comedian there. No, no, you do generally look <laughs> yeah. like a comedian. I can confirm you look like a comedian in this photo. I do the job. You, I you apparently do. do. And yeah. I will put that online for everyone to <laughs> yeah. see as well. But it's the one thing that got me there is the photos taken from behind. You look so relaxed. Relaxed. As relaxed as someone can look from taking a picture behind. Yeah. And, but but the, the, the crowd in front, there's a big crowd there. That was the recording of Dave's One Night Stand, which was a TV show uh, that was on Dave, the Dave channel. And it was Ardlo Hanlon was the featured guest and he was recording it in the Olympia. And he asked me to be uh, the, the kind of new guy. I remember him saying, because I think you're brilliant and I, I would like you to get whatever this will bring, which wasn't a whole lot really <laughs> a really good eight minute clip and a great photo that's a great that's photo. made it onto yeah. this podcast yeah. and he's, who would have thought that he was just a really nice like Ardell is a lovely 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 man and a brilliant comic and I remember I do remember when I got the phone call that I was asked to do it being astonished <laughs> really uh, so I was delighted yeah no it's fantastic and how were you when you started comedy what about before comedy when you were back in school did you do comedy work back then uh, no no I didn't at all actually when I was in school I had a small group of friends my friends John Kevin I was very I was always bullied like I was the camp 
kid <laughs> that never brushed his hair. <laughs> that was my vibe. Um, so I was, I always felt like I was protected a little bit by them, like my friends John and Kev. I always just felt that they were kind of my rocks. So when I was at school, I did, I did my best not to stick out. So I think that what happened with me in comedy was when I uh, finished college, I started to do like amateur musicals and plays and stuff like that. And then I was like, oh my God, I love this. <laughs> this is brilliant, like going on stage. And, and then I just kept working at it and writing stuff and fell into it by accident. There was never any grand master plan. And I always say, if there had been a master plan, it wouldn't have worked. That's always the way <laughs> as well. Definitely not. No yeah. way. Like. <laughs> so, so you were involved in a lot of plays and stuff. And you were always a big music fan as well, weren't you, growing up? Yeah, I was a big pop music fan. I, I think I was one of those kids that just hid an awful lot, you know, so I didn't go out. It was very, you know, I think it was bullying. Like, it was just plain old-fashioned bullying. I was just the kid that got picked on. So I tended to just stay in my room quite a bit and I would read smash hits cover to cover every time it came out and it was oh my god I loved it I still have all of this random encyclopedic knowledge of <laughs> 90s pop music of like pop bands you've never heard of <laughs> but um, yeah so I, I, I had a massive music collection like and I, only a little while ago I, I had to clear out all my CD singles and stuff because it was just overwhelming I had literally two full bookcases of you know just singles and yeah oh, I had that's to, sad yeah. I had to go I, some of it had to go I did I kept some of it and then some of the stuff that I got rid of I ended up buying again because I was like no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. nothing sadder than so to a local charity have. shop and buying back the records that you gave them. Yeah, no, no comment there. No, no, no comment. <laughs> no judgment from no, there. No, not at all. No, no, no. So, so you ended up on stage, and how did the comedy start? Well, what used to happen was in Dublin with musical societies, there were a lot of kind of cabaret nights that was just to raise money to put the musical on, and people would go and sing songs, and then some people would kind of do comedy, and I was always fascinated by the people that did comedy, and I always felt that I could do it, but I never had the guts to do it. I always felt that like the amateur scene in anything is always hostile and judgmental and you know because in the professional circuit that just doesn't exist it's just you get the job or you don't so I never had the guts to do it there but I found out about the open mic scene and I found out that if I wrote sketches and stuff I could just go along and put my name down and go up and do 10 minutes so I just started to do that and it was kind of like my dirty little secret for a good while actually I, I kind of felt like I was having an affair to be honest <laughs> it was a like oh, this, this thing where I just sneak out and <laughs> yeah. do these gigs and come back feeling delighted with my Myself and very smug and then uh, I suppose like with anything I was doing well so I I started to people suggested you should go for that competition or this and I started to win them I got to the final of a big one and I was in the paper as a finalist and oh, then everybody nice. found out and then my parents came along and went well what is this that he's doing and then I won the competition that night and they're like oh well, well there's one <laughs> this place is what you do well there's, there's one, one place where you can't hide and that's on stage it's, it's a very hostile environment I mean if there's one lonely job it's being a comedian uh, yeah it is a lonely job definitely and that's something I always say I love the work jury's still out on the life because it is quite lonely <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it is um, you spend so much time on your own you create it on your own you do it on your own you know at your show everybody else is having a night out except you but I love it like it is the best job in the world when it when it's going right when it's going wrong it can be <laughs> quite rough do you ever get a heckle every now and again and I hope you shoot down that heckle quite fast yeah I do I tend, I tend to murder hecklers <laughs> yeah. is where they sit um, yeah it's really weird because at the start that's always your big fear I think like anything else the fear about it is is that you don't feel like you're in your space you feel that you are the intruder and the imposter and you're like oh I shouldn't be here that's just your that's your worst fear I think as a new comic is that the heckler will say something and it's right and you 
accept it. Whereas now I feel like, well, this is my show. Anyone that doesn't want to be at it, there's the door. I don't put up with a lot of heckling. No, no, you own no. the stage. I've seen you perform a few times and you've got great stage presence. Yeah, well, well I think it's something that you, I think that's something you just have to have. It's just part of the job. There's, there's no getting around that. Like, So it's it's really a case of like toughen up. To be honest, that stage must feel big. I think you have to give yourself the right to be there. Like even now, I, at some point, I feel you have to go, I'm actually, this is, I'm supposed to be doing this. Like, you know, and anyone that feels that I'm not supposed to be doing it, well, they're just wrong. You know, and I think that comes with anything. I suppose, I'm sure it's like diving, that if you go and you do a bad dive or something, you feel you're in this place where it's like, what am I doing here? I'm the imposter. You know, and you yeah, have to just yeah. get all of those demons out of your head. Because that that's just, I suppose, the secret to doing something well and to being professional. Like, I think if you're professional on something, you have to toughen up and you have to take the knocks and not let them actually get in. You have to get a bit of a force field around you. And definitely in comedy you do. And it has to be one of those things where you, while you have this force field up, you have to be also be able to know what you're feeling to be able to write good jokes and stuff that resonates with people I think okay my first photo that I brought was taken in Glenda Lock and it is me with uh, two of my friends that I was in school with and friends with since I suppose we were 12 and it was taken the morning after or the day after one of them got married and it's just us all throwing stones hung over (laughs) (laughs) and throwing stones uh, into into the lake and uh, I don't really go in for photographs much to be honest but this is one of the ones I have up in my sitting room at home Uh, and yeah I just like we're, we're we're two friends or three friends that have been together forever and we're all hugely different. I mean, we, I, I think we couldn't be more different yet. We're just still best buds. Now, friends are important and they're, they're a group of people who are around you, whether it's friends, family, everyone needs a support group. And especially with your work, comedy, how were they involved with that? Did you lean on them often? Um, yeah, I kind of tend to lean more on that. Well, I mean, I've always leaned on them, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I really have. Yeah. Like, I, was, I mean, all throughout school and stuff, they were the they were my buddies, like, when things were a bit crap. We were very similar back then, but we're all very different people now. Uh, yet we still have that f- fundamental love for each other, which is just really lovely. Um, but with comedy, I th- always think that comedy is the elephant in the room because I think it is the thing that separates me from the most because it's just the thing that they just couldn't understand the positions I'm in, and yet they... They do try to help when I say things like, oh my God, I don't have a pension. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Ken will say, well, look, I have a spare room. <laughs> and, if it, and if it ever goes like that, you can you can move in with me. You know, it just, it's it's just things like that. And John is very successful with regards in like the world of like communications and speech writing. So I remember when I was doing an interview, I was worried about, he sat me down and <laughs> was just like, okay, this is what you say. You know, don't accept the premise of the question if it's a dodgy question or, you know, just stay on message with regard to X, Y, and Z. And he's, he's just really good at that and I don't really have any insight into them in their daily lives in their world of work and every so often they come to my shows and it's kind of like wow that's they'll they'll hear everything in your daily life as well yeah Yeah, so I mean I think that in life I think you make all your friends very early I think it's rare that later on in life you tend to make new friends and I mean that is something I think that's really important that you leave open is that you allow yourself to make new friends but I think it's fantastic that you keep the old ones I mean so many people I know have lost touch with the friends who were at school with and I always can see how that would happen but I'm always like nah and family as well how do they feed into your comedy Um, family yeah I mean again I think if you're a comedian you are the black sheep (laughs) (laughs) well I mean in fairness like I'm not from a long line of entertainers I'm from a long line of civil servants you know Mm -hmm. I'm one of the only people in my family that 
will not have a civil service pension. <laughs> you know, I'm, my sisters are a nurse, a solicitor, a teacher, and my brother is works for the parks department. So they all have very dependable, reliable jobs. And then I'm... You sound like the wild child. I know. <laughs> I'm the one that's like, I told them many gigs in for February. Uh. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they're just like, what is this? like? And I do, I do sometimes think that if I looked back to maybe 15 or 20 years ago and if someone was to tell me the way I would live my life, you know, with regard to things like finances, schedules, all that sort of stuff, I think I would be genuinely horrified because comedy is not a reliable profession. I always think I am two paychecks away from being, I'm going to have to find a job. That's it. That, you know, that's it. You know, that's but a that's scary line of, being, of work. That's the, well, that's the nature of being in entertainment in Ireland is that you're always like, there's nothing after March. That's it. And then some, sure enough, something comes in and you go, oh no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine, but the one thing you do do is make people laugh and, and, and bring, bring, bring joy and happiness to yeah. so many people. And I know people who actually listen <laughs> yeah. to this will go, well, if you think he's funny on stage, well, you hear about the state of his finances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> From 2008, 2009, 2010, your, your comedy really, really took off. And that leads me on to my next photo, which is of you sat on a sofa with PJ Gallagher <laughs> doing a TV show back in 2011. Can you tell me more about that photo and the TV show, the concept, what he's like to work with, and just the whole kind of the show? Because I've seen some of the show, and it's, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was so much fun. The the photograph that you're that you're talking about there is the one. It was the first day that we tried out these characters that were the twins, uh, which were two conjoined twins. One of them's gay, one of them's straight, and they absolutely just bully each other. And it was the best fun I've ever had doing anything. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you actually how, how we arrived at the twins. What happened was when we were developing the pilot, PJ came up with this idea of a taxi driver that had um, a ventriloquist dummy. It was actually, looking back now, I think it was like similar to a kind of like the Mr. Hat thing in, in South Park. We were like, that would be so funny that PJ would be this like aggressive ventriloquist dummy that just goes everywhere with this poor taxi driver. But we couldn't make it work visually. We didn't really know how to make it work. So we kind of just dropped the idea. And then one day, and I remember where I was, I was in Tesco's in in the queue thinking about it where all great, where where all all great, great ideas, ideas happen, happen. <laughs> the queue at Tesco's Express uh, I just was thinking about all of the stuff that we the ideas we had for it. I was like that has to work how can we make that work and then I had the idea that maybe they're conjoined twins so we had a meeting the following week in Al the, the producer's house and I just kind of floated this idea that maybe it could be you know, we could change it into this and one could be gay and one could be not gay and that they'd be conjoined twins. We all kind of went, oh my God, that's actually a good idea. And then Al ran out of the room and ran upstairs and got this massive hoodie that he had. <laughs> I know where this is going us, now. <laughs> I wish I had that photograph, but the two of us got into the hoodie, zipped it up and we're like, oh my God, this is genius. And we were so convinced and anyone else that we told about it were like, that does not sound right. But that photograph was on the first day that we did it and it it just every time we shot the twins it just happened really quickly and organically and it was just it was the best fun like I loved every second of it and we had such a ball making that series and when we were making a PJ he, he was big into motorbikes and he had an accident where he had to have big surgery on his ankle so we actually shut down after the show was commissioned and we, we didn't do anything on, on it for about six months and then we just went hot and heavy for a couple of months where we just hammered it all out and uh, and the series was made and the financial crash happened and <laughs> oh, no. they moved the show to RT1 
and we were on after prime time. So basically what I'll happened cheer was... cheer everyone up. Yeah. <laughs> that people were listening to how their houses were worth nothing. You know, we were all in debt. Their pension pots were being raided. And then all of a sudden there were these two idiots in a t-shirt and everyone was like, no. <laughs> two, two idiots in a t-shirt uh, rolling around an ice. Because on one of the episodes is absolutely hilarious. You both fall over. And it generally looks like an accident. And it looks like it looks like the camera's basically just carried on rolling. Yeah. And you both just, you can't get up. <laughs> what happened with that was, that was actually shot on Christmas Eve, I think. And it was our last day on the pilot. And we needed to go down to a shopping centre because we wanted to do exterior shots. We had an idea that we they could be on this mobility scooter. But we had no way of getting the mobility scooter from where we were based down to the shopping centre, which was in Drimna. So we decided, well, the only way, the best way to do it is if somebody takes it down. And then the director thought, okay, well, why don't you two dress up and we'll you can drive down to the shopping centre and we'll just take shots from across the road. So people didn't see the cameras because they were all across the road. We just drove down on that and I swear to God, nobody batted an eyelid. <laughs> it was hilarious. Nobody gave us a second look. It was like, there's two lads, you know, in the same jacket on a mobility scooter and literally nobody looked at us twice. It was, it was hilarious. Like. And like, that's one thing that I always forget about is just comedy, how physical it is oh, as yeah. well. Like when you're on stage as well, you use your body to such an extent. Well, yeah, I mean, it's because comedy's so boring to watch, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you're just one man on a microphone, so you're like, I, I need to sell this. You know, you need to... Yeah, I, I, it's all about comedy. I think the secret of comedy is the picture that's in your head. You have to paint that picture for the audience, and that's whether you are acting something out, doing an accent or whatever it is. You have to give them the picture that you're finding funny in your head. And so many times I've had material where I thought, this isn't working, it's just not working. And you drop it, and then one piece of material in particular, I remember, where I just couldn't get it to work, but I knew it was funny. And I went into it, and it was a Vicar Street gig, and I thought, God, what am I doing? This is not what I meant to do. I, you know, I dropped this. And my brain just went into overdrive of, just sell this. And I just acted it out, and it worked. And finally, I was like, oh, I just wasn't giving them the picture. So I think that that's, I think with physical comedy, that's what it's about. You have to just sell the picture. All right, my next photograph is of Naomi Coleman. Uh, this was taken after the podcast festival, um, and it was taken by her husband, Adam. It's, it, this is an interesting one, and it kind of ties back into the school stuff and the pop music stuff, in that I was a massive pop music fan, and I was such a big fan of Naomi Coleman. And she had a couple of albums in Ireland, and she did some stuff in the UK, and then she just literally disappeared off the face of the earth after she finished her deal. She moved to Los Angeles, and she was making music out there, but she was off the grid. <laughs> Very cool. Pre-YouTube um, Pre-YouTube well. days, yes. And I, I do a podcast where I track down all of those people that I used to be obsessed with when I was a teenager. I could never find her. Just couldn't. Uh, I've tried so many times. And then uh, I just put a tweet out one day going, does anybody... I was, listen I was listening to her album uh, in uh, Busy Feet Cafe. I was like, God, where is she? Like, what is she doing? So I put a tweet out and then sure enough, someone got back to me and was like, I know her. And then they put us in touch and then I did a podcast episode with her and we have been firm friends ever since. And I think she's just amazing. There was something about her album. I don't know what it was. I think it was that she was a teenager herself when she wrote all the songs and it was just all about... 
not been understood and not being listened to and you know all of those things that you go through when you're a teenager and I was just obsessed with it like I played it on a loop for I'd say two years I, rem- I, I think that with stuff like that you go into this point where you just accept that that's your lot in life you know you're like oh this is the way it's going to be and life is going to be miserable and you know I have to just wage this battle myself and there's a song on her album that I always used to skip there was just one song at the end I don't know why it was just the one song that I never got and I remember one time being in the kitchen boiling the kettle on the break of Coronation Street to make my mother a cup of tea <laughs> I remember and it was playing on the kitchen stereo and that song came on and I was just listening to it I was just feeling completely lousy at the time and it was called Hold Tight and it was just really about it's okay to hold tight and say that you're frightened of all that's to come and fall down and hold tight to someone that's the lyrics and I remember just being like no I'm actually a kid I'm supposed to ask for help here you know I'm, I'm not supposed to just ha- be able to handle all this myself so I just went in with the cup of tea to my mother and just told her everything I was like I'm having such a terrible time in school and I'm, this is you know what's going on and it, it doesn't change anything but the fact that you actually tell somebody and actually have that conversation is just I think so important and that, I think that ties into all that mental health stuff now but for me I don't know why but that song was just a real watershed moment and it's just so weird that life goes full circle that now I go for coffee with Naomi Coleman yeah, you, you're, you're great friends and, and talking to people does help in life it totally does I mean it's the thing it is the hard but I think it, I think if you are not programmed to have those conversations like if your body and your every instinct just goes just keep it inside it's the hardest thing in the world to do but it is the one thing that you will do that you will feel infinitely better afterwards you know if you have a problem even if you're just annoyed about not being able to find parking as soon as you go oh my god there's no parking in Dublin and someone goes yeah you're right you go oh yeah I feel amazing yeah, <laughs> very, very true and, and, and I always tend to feel quite guilty if I feel bad because there's people out there in the world who have it a lot more worse than me And but some somebody very wise who I know said to me Ollie if you feel crap you feel crap no one can tell you how you feel yeah. so tell people yeah exactly and also one of the things that you have to do is that talking I think is the antidote to all the feelings so whatever you're feeling if you want to feel the opposite way talk like all those feelings are not necessarily there to help you a lot of the times feelings are there trying to destroy you as soon as you talk you feel the opposite way that's just the way your brain works there's still something about that album I think it's very I think it's really really special and it's so funny because anybody particularly gay guys actually going through the whole coming out thing the messages that I got after she was on my podcast were just gushing with like you know I listened to that album for like three years straight like she was my coming out story you know even for her now sometimes when I tell her because you can't just be sitting having coffee going (laughs) (laughs) I think you're amazing Um, But even sometimes when I tell her those things, she seems so removed from it because they were just songs that she wrote about, obviously, herself. But I think that with comedy, with music, with anything, as soon as you write honestly and from the heart, I think it just resonates with everybody. Fantastic to hear that from a a comedian as well who has to talk in front of so many people about life, which isn't easy to do (laughs) at the best of times. But before we go on to the next photo, I have a quick question. Just listening to that. Are you a bigger fan of Neve Cavanaugh, Oh, or Naomi <laughs> Coleman because I know you used to go round to her house after she won a 1993 Eurovision right, as a kid and knock on her door and say hello all I the know, time I was, a ch- I was a child when Neve won the Eurovision and you see the thing about it is Neve was one of my neighbours so I was just like oh my god a Eurovision winner lives around the corner we have to be friends even though there's like 15 years between us 
So I would just like bang on the door on Willow Park Grove and go, hi, is Neve there? And they would go, yeah, okay. And Neve would come out and tell me about like <laughs> that she was recording her album or that, you know, whatever she was doing. And it was really weird because um, I was clearing out recently and I found a postcard that Neve sent me. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. And it was like, hi, Garoda, I'm in Nashville recording my album. <laughs> oh. Neve is a sweetheart. At least it wasn't high growth, leave me alone. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> high growth, here's the restraining order. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, God. I mean, I, I'm, we're such good friends now. I mean, we recently went to um, we went to Amsterdam because she was performing at this big Eurovision concert. It was just amazing. Like, I'm so proud of her. Like, when I see... I, sometimes you forget. Actually, this happens in comedy as well. Sometimes you forget that people that you are friends with and people that you know from going for coffee or going to see a movie are actually really good at their job. So you actually forget... <laughs> yeah. You forget the thing that they do. So it was really weird when I went to, to Amsterdam with Neve because it was like, I knew she'd just sing the song and I know she sings the song absolutely amazingly. But then it was like, oh my God, there's people waiting at the hotel. It was just really, really weird to be walking out a door with her and have her, people descend on her with copies of In Your Eyes or to see her like on stage in an arena belting out the song and like 17,000 people going mad. And you go, I actually forget that the person that we talk about things like, I'm so sick of this weather or, you know, has this whole other side. Everyone's human. Yeah. Well, when you're when you're friends with somebody, you just, you don't see that. Even with you. <laughs> I did not find that. With all you, and then there's a video of you on, some, on something <laughs> I'm like, he's a good diver, isn't he? <laughs> So, Garoad, it's time for your next photo. Please okay. tell me what's on the screen. Okay, this one is the signing of the BBC option. Wow. You've really done your research, Ali. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting one. That was a script that I, I had written with uh, my friend Kathleen, who I've been friends with for donkey's years, and we did sketches and stuff together years ago. We wrote a script that had been knocking around a while, actually. Um, it had been originally asked for by RTE, who did the RTE thing of like, send us a script, we can't wait for it, we really want to read it, and then you send it to them, and then you just <laughs> never receive an email again. You're like, oh, okay. But anyway, uh, through the jigs and the reels, the script ended up with the BBC in London, and they loved it. And they bought an option on it. Yeah, which was great. I mean, it's really weird in comedy because the things that everybody perceives as the really exciting things are genuinely not the really exciting things because you know with that I think it's brilliant that it was options and everything I don't know if they'll ever make it it'd be brilliant if I they did I have my fingers and crossed yeah fingers crossed I mean we've written six versions of the pilot now and you know but what is amazing about that is we we went through a boot camp with BBC of learning what goes into writing a sitcom how you write a sitcom why just because you think you have a great script it may not necessarily be a great script. So I feel from a confidence point of view, something like that is just invaluable because we, myself and Kathleen now, are a finely tuned sitcom writing machine. We know exactly how to write a sitcom and what works and what doesn't. It's interesting because when you're in a process like that, you always think the next meeting, that's it, it's done. It'll be done after this, they won't, they won't go. But it's just, it takes a really, really long time. And recently we had a meeting with them where we were horrified and we said, we've heard that, you know, people have been in development for eight years and they were like, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, it can take quite a while. And they were they make it sound so we're casual. Like, oh, no. <laughs> but it's, but it is great. Like, you know, it's a great um, affirmation of your work and all of that. But it's not one of the things that I, I think about too much. Like, like I, I find that sometimes those things that are in brackets after your name, you know, yeah, because, yeah. because like journalists and, and, and promoters and all of that, they need something to go like, we're putting this guy on and this is the guy, you'll know him from or, you know, X, Y, Z. And even still, <laughs> I, I get like the Joan River 
Rivers thing, you know, of sport at Joan Rivers on tour, and you're like, oh, in 2012, like, <laughs> yeah. a long time ago. It was so funny, because recently, last year, I did a gig in the theatre, and the theatre announced, Geroad Farrelly, fresh from supporting Joan Rivers on tour, and I'm like... A few years have passed like, today. <laughs> she, she died five years ago. Yeah. The late, the late yeah. great Joan Rivers yeah. as well. Ah, oh, she was amazing, like, I mean, she was just, she was so wonderful, like, uh, and it was a great opportunity to, to support somebody like that, because she was a queen of comedy, like, you know, no question. But what I noticed from that is comedy is exactly the same no matter what level you do it at. I think if you are massively famous, it means you get maybe maybe 15 minutes, absolute max, at the top of the show where they're delighted and go, oh, it's Joan Rivers. But for the next hour and 15 minutes of the show, then you're just a comic and you have to just show you're a comic and you can absolutely do the job. It's different to music where people can go out and not be at the height of their powers, <laughs> you know, and just do the couple of songs people remember and everyone goes, yeah, it's brilliant. Whereas with comedy, they don't, you don't have greatest hits in comedy. You don't have stuff people want to hear because if they've heard it before, they don't hear it again so it's just new stuff better stuff it's very interesting to watch people like Joan Rivers and Sarah Millican because for me I'm the support act and it's you know well you're starting from zero and they're like we don't want you we didn't buy a ticket for you so you're like I have to work really really hard to get them on side and then you see people like Sarah and Joan going well yeah but I, I get maybe 10 minutes to the top where they're like yay we bought the ticket a year ago and here we are and now it's like come on make with the jokes I think that's what makes comedy very compelling you know and also a comedy gig is the great leveller doesn't matter where you're on when we're all in the green room you're all just a comic going out to do a certain amount of time which is kind of nice as well it's a bit of a meritocracy now it's, uh, it's an, a fascinating occupation to be in and the final thing I'd like to ask is what would you tell your younger self oh god say be a bit more savvy about the way you do comedy like do England first <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean Ireland is not the place to do comedy and I, I always say that to people when they ask for advice you know they'll say things like you know well I want to get into comedy it's like then get out of Ireland <laughs> just leave there are no opportunities here you know I'm doing I'm doing fine and I'm doing well but I got in I got in when the opportunities were really really different there are absolutely no opportunities for people now I think if you want to be a comedian and just work in Ireland you need to do a media course you need to be able to edit you need to be able to consistently put up funny good YouTube videos that sort of stuff so it's different the jack but of all trades the jack of all trades but what would I say to my younger self I would say trust your gut instinct on everything I don't do that I always think that's my gut instinct and I I, I found in so many situations that it takes me a good five years to get around <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's just yeah trust your gut instinct and just don't accept crap from people I think that you look back and you kind of think you, you, you tend to look back and go oh god if I had only done X, Y and Z but I think I think it's just trust your gut instinct I think if you have any inclination towards comedy or anything like that, you have a strong gut instinct. So trust us that's where it begins and ends really well thank you for opening up on what's been a fascinating insight into your life <laughs> and I can't wait to, to go to another one of your gigs in the near future but thank you very much for being on the podcast today oh my pleasure now everybody I highly recommend checking out Garode's podcast Fascinated you can find it wherever you get your podcasts now that's it for another episode on life in a bubble a huge thank you to everyone listening you can find all of today's photos on Facebook and Instagram at life in a bubble podcast Podcast. Next episode, we have a hugely talented photographer, Christian Tierney, on the podcast. Christian has photographed some of the biggest names in music and Hollywood. His photos have been on billboards in Times Square, and he's also been hugely successful in directing several short films. Until then, take care, look after yourselves, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Life in a Bubble.
Life in a Bubble is produced by myself and Amma Adu. Marco Dwyer and Katie Hackett are the show's researchers. Michaela Maloney, Nicola Fitzsimons, Josh Balf, Anisha Cheyenne Rice and myself are the show's editors. And the show's sound technicians are Nicola Fitzsimons and Anisha Cheyenne Rice. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Take care. See you next time.